Good morning, everybody, again. Look at this fun slide that I made. Um, <laughs> Happy Easter, Hope Lower Town. This morning has been just wacky, so I'm really excited to just finally settle into the pulpit and talk about Jesus. My name is, again, Paul Stiver. I'm one of the elders here at Hope Lower Town. And um, really, again, just glad you're joining us, whether you're here gathering with us in person or, or online. Really thankful for you being here and and uh, uh, celebrating Easter with us this day. And, um, but before Easter, we, we celebrated Good Friday. And this was on uh, Friday, if you were maybe able to join us either in the online experience or at, at Hope Downtown. Uh, we were able to check it out downtown. And um, it was a really great service. But we were looking at, particularly this Good Friday, the last words of Jesus. And there's kind of within the gospel accounts, there's kind of seven different uh, kind of last words that Jesus says out there. And, and um, the final one here is, is it is finished from John 19.30. And um, so that's Good Friday. Jesus dies on the cross and declares it is finished. And then yesterday and in, in the Holy Week, it's traditionally called something like Silent Saturday. And we're waiting, we're wondering. Uh, it's a, and at, at that time for the disciples, right, their Messiah had died. It's a despairing time for them. The guy that they thought was leading them to victory is in the grave. They're lost, they're scattered, they're hopeless. But good Silent Saturday now on this side of the cross is a hopeful time for us. Uh, we like to keep our movie references timely. This is a picture of Thor from 2011, so it's only 10 years old. Um, if you guys are familiar with this movie, Thor is now on earth, he's this... Um, Norse God, and he's now on earth, and he's, he's with human beings, and his hammer is stuck in the ground. Now, he was always able to wield this hammer because he's worthy, but through his actions, he's actually proven himself unworthy, and now here he is on earth, and he can't pick up his own hammer because he's not worthy to do it. And this is at the um, this is a traditional thing in, in film scripts and movies, um, in, in novels even, and all kinds of media. It's called the all is lost moment. And you get to this point where it just doesn't seem like you can win. So there's hopelessness for all involved. And this Thor, he can't defend the earth like he used to. It's typically done at the end of Act 2 to make the audience just feel this pain. And this emotion of what's going to happen and the paradox because it seems like there's no hope that the good guys have lost. And so we see that in Thor. We're actually going to see that in, in today's message as we look at this week's sermon. We're going to see in all his lost moment, which is Lazarus's death. So today's message is called Jesus is the resurrection and the life. It comes from John chapter 11, verses 17 through 44. It's a long passage. I'm going to work through it, but it's narrative. Uh, so it should go quickly, and we'll, we'll discuss a few things about it. Uh, the words will be on the screen, or if you want to follow along with your Bible, you can do that as well. So it says, and now just to give a little context, Jesus has heard about Lazarus dying, and he actually waits a couple days before he heads over uh, to, to see him. It says, on his arrival, now he's come to the place where Lazarus is. He's, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the 
loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. And so there's a lot of things that we can learn from this passage, and I'm going to try and pull out three, and we'll look at other parts of the Bible to help us understand this. But first, the first thing we're going to see, and this, we haven't looked at this yet, is in his resurrection, Jesus conquered sin and death on our behalf. And so I want to go back to the passage to look at that more. In his resurrection, Jesus conquered sin and death on our behalf. Where do we see that? And we'll go to this verse in verse 33. There's two things I want to look at that are descriptors of Jesus when he comes to this tomb. In verse 33, it says, when Jesus saw her weeping, this is Mary, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit. So we get this description. We see this again in verse 39. Again, when he comes to the grave, he's deeply moved in spirit. And I think this was fascinating in my study this week that 
This, a lot of people take this as anger, and we're going to look at that. So other translations will say that he groaned in his spirit or that he was angry in spirit. And grabbing onto this concept, B.B. Warfield, the commentator, says, inextinguishable fury at the sight of Lazarus in the tomb seizes upon him. Why? It is death that is the object of his wrath, and behind death, him who has the power of death, which is the devil in this passage, and whom he has come into the world to destroy. And so here's the description of Jesus that Tears of sympathy may hold his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage. The Bible describes death as the wages of sin. The result of sin, the fact that sin is in the world, its outcome is death. When Jesus comes to the the tomb of his friend Lazarus, whom he loved, And he sees the grief and pain caused by death and the sin and Satan behind it. What we see from Jesus is righteous anger. He hates that it has come to this. As Warfield says, his soul is held by rage. Why? Because he hates sin and death and he wants to deal with it. But we see another way that Jesus is described in this, path, in this very verse. He's been deeply moved in spirit. He's furious that sin and death are in the world. But he's also troubled. Why is he troubled? It says here that he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And just going to the next chapter of the Bible in, in John's gospel here, John chapter 12, we get the same language. It says, Jesus replied, now this is the Jews are are the people he came to reach and now the Gentiles or non-Jewish people are also coming to him and now he realizes something, that it's his time. That the time for him to go to the cross is near because people are coming to him. It says, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. And here we see this language again. Now, Jesus says, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. So Jesus is troubled when he sees Lazarus in the tomb. And he's troubled just one chapter later because he knows that the time for him to be glorified, the time for him to be raised up on the cross is near. He says, the hour has come for him to die And he's going to be the one who's going to die to produce fruit. But right now his soul is troubled. He's been sent by the Father for this hour. He's been sent to die. To pay for sin. And so we see that even further in the story in Holy Week here as he's 
making his way to the cross. This is him in the Garden of Gethsemane from Matthew chapter 26. It says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So we see that language again. He's troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, this cup of wrath that I'm going to go to the cross to bear the penalty for sin. Is there any other way, Father? And yet, not as I will, but as you will. This is Jesus' all his lost moment. He's come to the brink where he's going to deal with sin and death. He's going to lose his life, though, but he's going to gain everything. He's the one who's going to perfectly obey the Father. He's the one here who does the Father's will. He says, yet not as I will, but as you will. And we see then in the gospel, this isn't some form of divine child abuse, but this is a plan of love that God has brought to fruition in his son. God's love, God's plan was to redeem sinners. But because God is just and holy, there also needs to be a penalty. But that's what makes Good Friday good. Good Friday happens because of the love of God. Christ goes to the cross in our place because of the love of God. And we see here that he says, not as I will, but as you will. I will do your will, Father. Jesus is going to perfectly obey So like where Thor was proved unworthy, Christ is proved here that he was always worthy. And the worthy one is going to die for the unworthy. That's what Good Friday is all about. The Bible tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world and so hated sin and death that he did something about it on Christ's cross. And so Warfield can go on to say this, not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe, Jesus smites in our behalf. He has not only saved us from the evils which oppress us, he has felt for and with us in our oppression and under the impulse of these feelings, he has wrought our redemption. That Jesus, the one who actually had power over death, was willing to submit to death so that we might live. Was willing to live in this sinful world, yet without sin, so that we might be redeemed from sin. His resurrection means that he has saved us from these evils, these oppressors, sin and death. And that's why we celebrate. That's why we shout out, he's not here, he's risen, just as he said. If you're familiar with the TV show Brooklyn Nine-Nine, there's a classic scene, Brian's mentioned it before, where this guy has proved right. This is the captain, and he says, vindication! The resurrection is Christ's vindication. If the wages of sin is death, 
And Jesus rose. That means he must be without sin. And S.M. Lockridge tells us the grave couldn't hold him. Jesus is vindicated in his resurrection as righteous, which means that we can be vindicated as well, that we can have hope for righteousness, that because he lives, we can live, that I can be made right with God. Which leads us to the second point of the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection means we can be made alive with him by grace through faith. Because the question is, if he's vindicated, how do I get in on this? How do I get in on this vindication? How do I embrace this resurrection life? And for that, we'll go beyond the cross in the New Testament to Ephesians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul is writing and he says, As for you, and now he's talking to this church that has started, you were dead in transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Working in ministry, you have a lot of conversations with people about spiritual things. And one of the things that comes up a lot is I'll hear people say, how do I know I'm good enough to get into heaven? Am I good enough? I hope One day I just, I just hope I'm good enough to get into heaven. I hear that often. And when we look at this passage, we see that it's asking the wrong question. Because dead people don't need to start living better lives. Dead people are dead. The Bible describes us as dead in transgressions and sins. By nature of how sinful we are, deserving of wrath, the only thing we deserve is justice. But because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Not what I must I do to get into heaven, but who must I believe in? Dead people don't need to start living better lives. They need a Savior who can pull them out of their graves. That's the point of Easter. Because Christ is the only one who's truly good enough to merit heaven. And in him and in his righteousness, we are saved as well. And says, carrying on in verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We 
we so are so described as united with Christ that we're described as sitting with him already in the heavenly realms so that God might put his grace on display. But this doesn't come from ourselves. This is a gift of God. God making us his own handiwork, his masterpiece, his creation in his son so that we might do good works. So let's go back to the Lazarus passage again. It says in verse 38, Jesus once more deeply moved now, the second time, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there was a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? The reality of the Lazarus passage is Lazarus is resurrected here, but he's going to die again. And yet Jesus says, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. In the resurrection of Christ, in Jesus walking out of the grave, we behold the glory of God. And through faith in that good news, we're united to Christ. So it continues, so they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. I think it's interesting here that Lazarus walks out in response to Jesus' words. Jesus commands him, come out. He wants the people to believe that he's the Messiah, that he's the Son of God. And Lazarus walks out, but when you look again in the last verse, it says Jesus tells them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And the beauty of the resurrection is when Lazarus comes out, he needs someone to take his grave clothes off of him. But when Jesus walks out of the grave, he strips off his own grave clothes and walks into life. So the way we get in on this is by grace through faith. It says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is a picture of me and my mom uh, from 2016. This was my birthday. Uh, and we went, they rented, my parents rented a jet ski for us. And we just rode around on a jet ski. Uh, it was a little bit costly. It's actually kind of costly to rent a jet ski um, but you guys know the old joke about jet skis that it's impossible to frown while you're riding a jet ski? That was a great day. It was a great birthday. A lot of joy. But that, that was a gift from my parents. They said, hey, we want, we want to cover this. We want to do this for you. Now, if I would have said, no... That's too good of an offer. I can't let you guys do that. I would have missed out on a day of joy cruising around 
a lake on a jet ski. Flipping it and tumbling and, and riding around with my family. I would have missed out on so much joy if I would have rejected that gift. The Bible talks about this salvation, this offer from God as a gift. And the reality is I, we can't earn a gift. You cannot earn a gift. You can only receive it. That's why the Bible says it's not by works so that no one can boast. All we can do is turn our voices to praise. Thank you for this gift. Thank you for the grace. Thank you for the salvation. The resurrection tells us we can be made alive with Christ by grace through faith. Jesus wants us to believe this message because the reality is that we contribute as much to our salvation as Lazarus did to his own resurrection. We were dead in sin. And Jesus called us to life. He calls us to life through the gospel. So then when we come to faith in Jesus, that's actually us having our own all is lost moment. Where we've reached the end of ourselves. And we say, I can't do this on my own. I need a Savior. All this either just, just sinning or all this trying to just be good, a good person. I'm tired. I can't do it. My heart is sinful and I need a Savior who died for me on the cross. And that's what the Gospel tells us and Jesus wants us to believe today. That we can be made alive with Christ today through our faith in Him. And lastly then, Jesus' resurrection means that goodness, righteousness, beauty, and life prevail in the end. Goodness, righteousness, beauty, and life prevail in the end. And for that, we go to further in the story of 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul's writing a chapter to the Corinthians about the resurrection, but he starts with this. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, by this good news of Jesus, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. We've been going through the book of Hebrews apart from these special occasions like Easter. And so often we've looked at the theme of holding fast. And here Paul talks about this gospel that has saved you. And you've planted your flag. You've taken your stand on it. And now you just hold fast. And he says then, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and to the twelve, and then Paul continues on to more people that he appeared to in a resurrected body. But what we see here in the resurrection is that nothing defeats God in the Gospel. That God's purpose is to bring about life, occur and he fulfills them in the Son of God, in Jesus, who died for our sin, was buried and rose from the dead. And So at Hope Lower Town, we, we pride ourselves and we stake our claim on being a gospel-centered church. We really want that to be true of us. That if one of us gets up here and preaches or teaches a class or whatever happens, and you don't hear that you are a sinner who needs a Savior, 
and that Jesus has died for your sin. He's borne the penalty of God's wrath for your sin. And that he's buried your sin in the, in the grave and rose so that you could have new life. If you don't hear that, we're going to call each other on it. And you can call us on it. Because this is why we are a gospel-centered church. Through the gospel, God makes dead people alive. He awakens people to the reality of who he is. He saves us. And that's why this is of first importance. That God in his gospel has given hope to sinners, but he doesn't stop there. Continuing on in, in, verse, in chapter 15, starting in verse 51, we see a redemption plan for our bodies. It says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That we even have hope for our bodies, that, that Christ's resurrection pattern of his glorified body walking out of the grave into new life is the pattern we're going to follow. Where we're going to be clothed in immortality and imperishable. To the point that death will be defeated. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul uses this as a taunt, as a jeer. Because we will be raised to be like Christ and see Him as He is. This last week we went to a celebration of life. And someone that we loved dearly had passed away. And these words ring true for our gospel hope. That one day we get to taunt death and say, where is your victory? Where is your sting? It's gone. Because Jesus has risen. So we see this redemption plan for sinners, this redemption plan for our bodies, that death is going to one day die. Death is going to be defeated. Death has an expiration date. But God doesn't stop there. God has a redemption plan for the whole creation. This comes from the end of the story. In Revelation 21, 1 through 4, it says, Then I saw, this is the Apostle John having a vision, a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The resurrection shows us that God has a redemption plan for sinners, for our bodies, and for the whole creation. 
that he's going to usher in an age where only goodness and righteousness and beauty and life dwell, where there will be no more sin and no more death and no more pain. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Just last night, Allison, my wife and I were watching uh, Avengers, uh, the one of the Avengers movies. I think it was the um, the one before Endgame. I can't remember the name of it right now. Uh, but and Chadwick Boseman was there, playing Black Panther, and he's died, and we feel the sting of those things. The celebration of life we went to, we feel the sting of death. This last year, we'd be remiss if we didn't see and think about everything that happened in between Easter's in this world with COVID, racism, political animosity, violence, broken relationships, mental health struggles, mass shootings, abuse, assault, miscarriages, so much lamentable, unspeakable pain still happening in this world. So much wrongness. And as Silent Saturday reminds us though, even when it seems like all hope is lost, God is at work because Christ is going to rise and God is going to redeem everything. The resurrection tells us one day that will be no more. And so we go to this, we love to use this sometimes, and it's from the Jesus Storybook Bible. But it's just, a, it's written to kids to help us understand and help them understand that God has a redemption plan for everything. And here's the, from one of the last pages, going back to our passage in Revelation, it says, and the king says, look, God and his children are together again. No more running away or hiding, no more crying, or being lonely or afraid, no more being sick or dying, because all those things are gone. Yes, they're gone forever. Everything sad has come untrue. And see, I have wiped away every tear from every eye. And then a deep, beautiful voice that sounded like thunder in the sky says, look, I am making everything new. So Jesus is our resurrection hero. When we look at him rising from the dead, that's God showing us that everything sad is going to come untrue. That our hopelessness is going to be turned to hope. Our condemnation for our sin can be turned to vindication. Our sin and our acts of, that lead to death turns to good works in him. That our pain will one day become complete healing. And that our sadness will one day turn to joy because the only true good guy, Jesus, has won the victory. And he's the one who declares in resurrection glory, I am making all things new. Only Jesus redeems everything. There's no other message. There's no other place to turn. Only Jesus is willing to, in his death and resurrection, and his ascension, deal with the sin that lives in our hearts, 
do with the death that hovers over us and deal with all the wrongness in the world. And because of the resurrection, we can know that beauty and goodness and righteousness and life are going to prevail in the end. So we celebrate, we sing, we say that he is risen because it has so much significance. It's the most important event that ever happened. Because only Jesus redeems everything. So as we close in gospel application, what do we do with this? What do we do with this resurrection news? The first question we just have to ask is, have you come to your own all-is-lost moment? As we talked about, have you come to the end of yourself? Do you realize that you are a sinner in need of a Savior? That no level of good works and will satisfy, no level of sin will ultimately satisfy your soul? Because that all-is-lost moment is sacred. It's where we meet with Jesus. Because when we come to the end of ourselves, we put our faith in him. We say, I need you. I need you, Jesus. I trust that you have died for the forgiveness of my sins and the fulfillment of all your promises. And because you're raised, I believe that I can live and will live with you and in you. So have you come to that all-is-lost moment? And then secondly, if you have, if, that's, if you've been the person that's put your faith in Christ, and what we see with the resurrection is that God's calling us to persevere in the hope that everything sad is going to come untrue. Persevere in hope of seeing everything sad come untrue, first and foremost, in our individual lives. That we still have sin at work in us. And that's sad. So let's persevere. Let's be in community. Let's be in God's Word and let's together fight sin in our own lives with each other. All those acts that lead to death, let's confess those to each other, repent of those, turn from those, so that we could see more of Christ's life in us. And corporately and in the world. If that's where we're headed, to a place where only beauty and life and righteousness dwell, then let's get to work right now on making that a reality. Let's put those good works that God prepared beforehand for us on display as a body and as individuals out in the world. Let's persevere in the hope of seeing everything sad come untrue. Because the good news is He's risen. He's risen indeed. We're going to move to a time of communion now. If you didn't grab a, uh, a cup and the juice that, uh, and the bread that's in the back. And when we think about communion, oftentimes Christ, when, when Christ commanded the communion ordinance, he's calling us to remember his death. And likewise, we should, that his body was broken for us, his blood was shed for us. But we have to remember why. And we have to remember too today that his resurrection dealt with that and that we have resurrection hope that everything sad, our own sin and the evils in the world will come untrue because he walked out of the grave. So we're going to do a time of communion and a couple songs as we close here. Please pray with me.
Father, we just come before you this Easter and we celebrate that you are a God who, of love and a God who gives life and was willing to send your Son to go to the cross in our place so that you might make us new and you might make all things new. And you do it through the gospel and through our faith. And in your power, you do it. So God, we pray this Easter Sunday that we would look to the resurrection life of Jesus for strength, for hope, for joy. That one day you are going to make all things right. And we have that as a hope that's an anchor for the soul. And that because Jesus lives, we too will live. Be honored and glorified as we sing and worship you now in this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.